0: Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your
1: host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke. Thank you very much for joining me once again. And if you are a first time listener, Thanks very much for turning up today. We have a fascinating interview today with Kerry McCallum, who is the Director of the News and Media Research Centre at the University of Canberra, where she leads a team of researchers to advance public understanding of our changing media landscape. Her research in political communication specialises in the relationships between changing media and the Australian social policy, particularly in Indigenous affairs. Kerry is also the lead professor on the Breaking Silences, Media and the Child Abuse Royal Commission project, which is the first Australian research document to explore the connection between the media and the Commission's inquiries in the digital age. Fascinating stuff. Kerry is a major contributor to the field of communication and media studies in Australia and internationally, notably as the former president of the Australian and New Zealand Communication Association, and she is also a member of the Australian Institute for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies. Kerry's implemented a complex curriculum development and change management process at the fa- faculty, university, and national levels, notably as UC's inaugural academic director of graduate research from 2017 to 2019. Her career has been supported and grounded by nearly a decade of professional experience working in federal parliament. Political and media advisory roles, and she joins me in the studio. Kerry, thanks very much for coming on to GovComs. Hi, David. It's great to be here. There's so much that we could talk about. Really, <laughs> out of all of that, isn't there? Where do we start? I had forgotten
0: <laughs> <laughs> some of those adventures.
1: <laughs> it happens, doesn't it, in our careers that are so rich with opportunity? How have you managed your career, just as as as, as an interest? You know, have you? purposefully thought about things or have you just gone through your career thinking, oh, gee, that looks interesting, I might go over there? Yeah, I
0: would say it's more the take the opportunities when they arise. But on the other hand, when you're making the leap into academia, Uh, you have to make some pretty big commitments along the way. And probably the game changer for us is doing a PhD, plunging into three, four or more years of intense study around one particular topic. And that really gives you a strong foundation then. But from then in academia, I have had so many
1: opportunities. Yeah, right. So in terms of that, though, what, where were you at that stage of your career where you thought to yourself, okay, I think I really want to go into academia. Where, where had you got to? And obviously, there was the opportunity to do it. But as you say, it's a very big... Yeah. Step, career step, because, you, you know, you're, you're going into a completely different field.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. Uh, I would say there's a little bit of a gap in the timeline, but I would say it's after losing the 1996 election. Right. Um, politics is a brutal exciting um, combat sports sometimes and I had thought to myself that I might go down that path. I was very involved in politics and I was deeply committed to working on um, in in both the policy areas that I was working on in in, uh, superannuation, various policy settings Uh, and then I... I decided. I, then I then I lived through the '96 election with a one-year-old, mm-hmm. and God. I came out the other side of that and thought, "No, I I think I want to think. I want to think a little bit more. I want to have some time to step back and actually try and understand this game. Yeah. I want to understand." why people vote the way they they do, why big changes happen in society, why we can have these big policy shifts. And of course this was around the time of Pauline Hanson. So I lived through that election and those discourses emerging again in the Australian um, public debate and that gave me some some time. Moving out of politics um, gave me some time to think um, yeah, and I, I had um, an amazing opportunity to write down the oral history of an Aboriginal woman from. She was a Guma woman from Southwest Queensland named Hazel McKellar, and that also just gave me gave me a new passion mm. for understanding Indigenous affairs, both from that heavy political side mm. f- to the grounded, lived experience of one person who had lived through yeah. everything. Is
1: um. Yeah, we'll talk about that because I think it's, it's really interesting because I do remember myself when I was up in Parliament House as a reporter, I got to do an interview one day with a lady who um, had been in or managing mental health, not only her own mental health, but people around her. And I remember speaking to her, she was an, she'd become an advocate because of what had happened to her. But the power of the story, normally interviews on the program that I was running would sort of, you know, three to four minutes. But this interview was so powerful, it ran for 17 minutes. Oh, wow, on radio. And on radio. And I served it up to the executive producer and said, listen... This is seventeen minutes long, and she said, "Have you lost your mind?" <laughs> and I said, "No, no, no. I said, you've got to listen to this. this is i've done I've been doing this for a long time, mm. and I have just spoken to somebody. you that Australia needs to hear this. And so it ran for the whole seventeen mm. minutes, and it was just incredible the impact that it had. and we're, we're going back twenty years now, yep. but I think it was, you know, I I know at the time it had a huge impact because everyone picked it up then because it was such a great story and it started that discussion and debate around the importance of mental health and other things. So I'm sure it sounds like it was a similar experience for you that when you spoke with this person to to understand. And a lot of that, it's really difficult terrain when you're speaking with the... The indigenous people.
0: It really is, yeah. Um, we wrote the story down for Hazel's family, yeah, because uh, like so many uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families, there's a lot of dislocation, um, and Hazel was, you know, had never lost connection with her. Um, the area that she was born on, but many, many people have. So, yeah, so so writing down that story, listening to her story uh, and recording it for her family and then enabled that story to be told more widely. And it's, you know, it's still used. Um, yeah, yeah absolutely. Sure. It was published in, uh, in, in 2000. It's called The Woman from Nowhere. which yeah. um, which wow. just sort of got a little bit of irony to it. So, yeah, she was an in- extraordinary woman, um, mm. an absolute mentor to me. And, uh, yeah, and we're still close with, with their family.
1: Interesting. Um, th- the other point you raised in that earlier answer was life on the hill, life in the political bubble. I ran into a friend of mine who's been up there for the last, oh, God, probably 15 years, yeah. and I, she came out of a coffee shop, and I looked at her, and I was like, God, look at you. You just look completely different. <laughs> and she said, guess, guess what I've done? I said, you've you've gone. You've left. And she said, yeah. yeah. She seriously looked 10 years younger, healthier, happier, walking along with a dog. And we started just briefly. We are actually going to catch up and have a bit longer um, chat um, hopefully later this week. But it was it, – she said it's just, you know, once you're out and you're looking back in yeah. at what it is – and this is life on the hill, everybody. Like This is <laughs> life in the political realm. You know, whether you're in London, whether you're in Washington, whether you're in Brussels, it, it would be exactly the same. Yeah. Um, but explain to me what, what it's like when you are, you know, in that contact sport on a daily basis dealing with – you know everything that goes on. It's just a crazy, crazy place.
0: It is a crazy yeah. place, and I think you have to start out there in the electorates. Yeah, that's where the craziness is happening. Right, that's where you are at the coal face of um, of, of of your your constituency. Yeah. You know, it's a really. You know, I was a very young person when mm-hmm. I did that. Mm-hmm. I was only you know a couple of years out of my my degree. And uh, I was faced with the most extraordinary array of different people and inevitably they're problems. People come to you to to have complex problems solved. So, yeah, absolutely. In the the electorate offices, those people are, you know, really dealing with the coalface every day. Then, of course, there were the inevitable long, gruelling trips up to Canberra. where you know really those two weeks of parliament—that's the—that's the bubble inside the bubble. Yes, that's when we're having really long days, and when you when you're you know advising for a minister, you're preparing briefs and um, and and questions on notice or questions without notice for for uh, for. for for um, question time, uh, and still, you have a different set of constituents then. Yes. You have all the lobbyists. I mean, a lot of my job was dealing with um, with the lobbyists um, on superannuation. And everybody wants something. Yes. Don't they? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and that's <laughs> a big part of your job <laughs> is to actually field that from your, well, mine was parliamentary secretary, but, you know, from your minister or parliamentary secretary to ensure that the advice you're providing is uh, is correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know, it was a very interesting time. I, I learned so much and, and, yeah, mixed with some incredible people. I mean, I think that's the thing, the energy yeah. that's up there, yeah. the intensity that's up there means that everybody is
1: going somewhere. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, and, and I find, you know, my experience of my time up there in particular and engaging with the political officers is that, you know, people are very passionate about being there. Oh. and making a difference yeah. you know it's, it's why they're there because it, it means something and that creates a, a an electricity that is just you know hard to yeah. hard to you, you don't see it in a lot of other workplaces you know there's not you yeah, well there's so much at no, stake I, I suppose
0: I think that's right I think they're in three year cycles you know you, it's yeah. it's all Contract
1: work—it's
0: yeah. all you know. We're here today, and we might be gone tomorrow. And yeah. so, I think that adds to the intensity. And also, you're trying to make change. Yeah. You're trying to implement big social policy changes yeah. that are, um, you know, that have to—you have to be done quickly yeah. and uh, effectively. So, yeah, well, I still follow. I still follow it. Yeah, I bet. Well, <laughs> yeah. I think we all do. I think yeah. once you're in there, once yeah. it's part of you, and
1: you know, it's part of the joy of living in Canberra. I think is yeah, it you know, it, it it means something to. Certainly to to those of us who live in... And, again, I think it is for people who work in any of the political systems, whether they're in the media or advisory or whatever they are or in actually government itself... Um yeah, it's 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 something that it never leaves you. I love it. No. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't yeah. get enough of it. You know, I've got Parliament tuned in my radio <laughs> in my car and all the nerdy things, you know, sit up at night. That's right. There's watch. only a
0: small group of people who really <laughs> get it.
1: <laughs> so tell me what uh, this, this podcast is really is for generally for people who work in government communication. Mm-hmm. So as someone who's an advisor, and and what we try to do is actually Get some value for people so that there's things that they can take away and hopefully be better at at their work and be more efficient and effective. What advice do you have to to government communications people when they're trying to engage effectively into a minister's office? What are some of the things that they should be... That that they should do to to add value and to be seen and to be valued by the minister and the minister's staff. What are yeah. the what are the sort of key things?
0: Wow. Okay, that's a really good point. I it's you know it's a long time and the and the actual technical environment has changed, but yeah. probably those fundamentals haven't changed. No. I think it's about understanding how politics works, and there is a difference between politics and and the operations of government. Yes. You know, um, political leaders have. Uh, Always have an outward focus, so you have to understand that they are always thinking about talking to people, about that outward focus, about communicating simply and succinctly. And it's again, it's a bit like with academia; it's it's translating um, complex policies that you might be, you know, might be immersed in one element of that policy uh, context. Yeah, the minister might have a hundred. Yeah, different things on his desk or her desk every single day. Yeah. And so it's about understanding, try to put yourself in their shoes yeah. and communicating to them in that way.
1: Do you have to understand the hundred? Do you have to have a, a mm, should, well, should, should you be across, you know, the minister that you're serving and, and really try to make, make it part of your work as to understand what it is? Oh,
0: it can't hurt and I think the higher up you get. Yep. The more that brought, you know, the the interrelationship between those those different contexts becomes absolutely vital.
1: Yeah, at at that de- deputy secretary yeah, level, that even sort of assistant, yeah. assistant yeah. secretary yeah. levels yeah. where yeah. They're, they're in and, and yeah. providing value. Yeah. So, um, okay. So after that, you jumped, you know, you you jumped into that, but I think into the world of um of of academia. But I'm. Very interested around that, you know, breaking silences project. The Great. you know the media and the, the child abuse royal commission. You know, again, oh God, so distressing, so horrendous. Um, but w- what have you found? What 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 do you know? What do you now know that you didn't know um, prior to do, okay. do, do, doing the work?
0: We've only just started, Mm. so but when I say that, we've actually been working on this for about two and a half years. That's how long it takes to put together one of these big projects. Uh, What do we know so far? We know that the Royal Commission was groundbreaking in its communication strategy. So it had um, Justice McClellan put communication at the heart. He had a policy of open justice and that... Um, that impacted on everything. That impacted on the way, not only the way the commission did its business in the legal sense and the you know that side of justice, but it meant that from right from the very beginning, he was he had an open and frank relationship with Australia's news media, but he also understood the affordances of digital technology. So that Royal Commission was set up. I say that was I say it was set up with a bespoke set of practices because you can do that in a royal commission. Okay. A government department is like this organic thing that goes on and on and on year after year. Yeah. It never gets to stop and right. reset. Yeah. With a Royal Commission, Julia Gillard announced that Royal Commission in 2012. It was operational by 2013 and it was it was an it was an institution it was an organisation that had been set up so every part of that institution had communication at its, at its, in its baked veins. Into it. Yep, yeah. baked into it. Yeah. and so that means that it it ran very differently from any commission before, and I'd probably say most commissions afterwards. But it's it's groundbreaking, and it will influence the way that other commissions operate, and that's what we want to do. We want to document that no one's done it before, yeah. so we want to document that um, and its impacts and. And, and provide that information for for future commissions for future
1: governments mm-hmm. setting up commissions so in a practical sense though what did that commitment to open justice and an understanding of digital technology and uh, um, and, and a, that commitment to openness mean in a practical sense from a practitioners point sure. of view what, what what sort of things were done that were different
0: probably the big groundbreaker was the live streaming what? of um, of the public hearings yeah. uh, that that brought the commission to the world. Yep. It made it completely global. But that interconnected with the, the use of social uh, media and an openness to the social media activism that was going on out there. So, oh, there's so many things. The website. Yep. The website was a beautiful portal for those people affected, victims, their families, the institutions to, to look inside and to, and to follow and become part of that community. So a really strong website, mm-hmm. um, a Facebook page that was interactive that enabled people, To comment, and if you can think of the context we're talking about here, Mm. we're talking about the most, some of the most vulnerable and damaged people in the society. They were welcomed
1: into that conversation Mm. all the way through. Mm. But then, as you say, it's, you know, there was a start point and an end point. What was done with that community once it was created? Well, um, sustained or just left? Well, again, that's some of the stuff we're going to be looking at.
0: I would say engaged with, yeah, meant that it actually changed the direction of the Royal Commission. Okay. So if you think of Loud Fence, which yeah. started off, it's a beautiful example. One of the things we want to do is look at local grounded activity, so people in their communities living in a place like Ballarat, considered the epicentre of child sexual abuse in the 70s, and social media completely global, connected. So how do those two things connect? Uh, and so um, the Royal Commission was able to um, listen to those voices, engage those voices, and that social media activity um, was part of the reason the Commission ended up going to Rome to interview um, Cardinal Pell. So it, it it was an openness throughout the Commission that actually will ha- will have the biggest impact. That said... It's a really important point that that royal commissions start and finish. Yeah, um, it, the, the findings have been handed down. The government has made its response. But It's now in government's hands, and not in this. I mean, this is another thing about royal commissions. They're not just government. No, they're no, public. They, 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 they <laughs> belong to the community. <laughs> they belong to the community. That's mm. absolutely right. So it's not just government. But, and it, but it's in particular those institutions um, that were the subject of that Royal Commission. It's up to them to, mm. um, to you know, to, to implement those findings and, uh, and really cultural change. It said that's, what, that's what the government said when it responded. It said this has to be a, 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 mm. a, a cultural change across the community. So government has responsibility. Those institutions have responsibility. Mm. Um, but, you know, this is, I think, where the media comes in. When that media spotlight shifts, what's happened to those voices that might have been heard? Mm. And that's another thing we've been looking at a lot in this in this in this um, research. Our first paper is about um, how media emphasised some stories yeah. over others. Right. So part of this open justice approach was to listen to all of the voices. I don't know if you remember when Julia Gillard launched the Royal Comm- announced the Royal Commission. She said, "If you feel you've never been heard before, mm. this is your opportunity." Yeah. And that's what the Royal Commission did. It wasn't just about the Catholic Church; no. it was about sporting organisations, no. hospitals, no. Salvation Army, no. orphanages, out-of-home care. Oh. You know, historically and in the present. Yeah. Um, but our research to date has shown. That that's not really the story that the public got. Yeah, right. The story the public got through yeah. the mainstream me- news media is one about the Catholic Church. Yeah. And it, of course, that was, uh, uh, I think, uh, yeah, huge. It, 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 part of it, it. Absolutely. About 60% of the private hearings yeah. related to churches. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I suppose to someone who's in the media, it's self-evident. It's yeah. it's That's how we understand these stories. Yeah. We have an individual. We have a figure. Yeah. We have George Pell. Yeah. That's how we can make sense of something so heinous yeah. that was happening in our own community that we all stood by and let happen for yeah. so many years.
1: Yeah. But that's part of the theory now, isn't it, about, you know, ch- uh, you know the the trial of of Pell and the conviction and this sp- and the and the narrative around you know is he carrying the can for everything that went on you know and perhaps yep. there's some truth to that.
0: Yeah, and I mean it's just it's the way news values work. Yeah, it's the way journalistic news values work. It was the perfect storm. Yeah, you know you had a high profile person, you had connections, we had a high profile institution. Oh yeah, the highest. Yeah, yeah. Um, you had connections with government. Yes. You had that. Uh, um, you had people. You know, you had support from oh, some yeah. of the most influential spokespeople across the nation. Mm. Um, it was it's it was a it was a you know a big game. You know, for for, for pill to fall was monumental. Yeah. And so I don't. It's not that we, we 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 put a critical media studies lens on this. Yeah. It's not that we're saying, of course, in media terms. That's the big story. Of course, this is the one that helps the community to understand. But what about all of those other victims? What about all of those other institutions? Is the spotlight on them?
1: Yeah.
0: Are they being held to account? Yeah. So we want to dig deep and really understand how um, the media played a role God, in shaping gonna, understanding. It's going to take a long time, <laughs> isn't it? Actually. Oh well, but then yeah. you know, It's an important
1: piece. You know, it's an important piece of work. But from your, if we just pull the lens up a little bit higher then and look down across the, you know, evolving media landscape, you know, what, what are your views or your assessment of the, you know, this, this rapidly evolving, changing, fragmenting, you know, media environment? You know, it, it is such a different world and it's, it's, and it's changing so quickly, you know, oh. around, you know, how do they stay alive, you know, commercially such that they can fund their businesses, and how do they respond? Where do they, you know, the traffic, you know, the oh. role of the of the of the big platforms? Where, where, where and you're just back from Oxford, interestingly. <laughs> um, uh, Kerry's just been away. There's the annual Reuters report where they, there's a global analysis of, of news media on an annual basis, and Kerry's just been at the annual meeting over at Oxford <laughs> University. So. Yeah, where, where, where is the world sitting on all of this from an academic point of view? What were some of the discussions w- that were at that meeting about and what are the, some of the big takeaways?
0: Oh, it, it, it's a really interesting field to be involved in at the moment. Mm. You know, we thought, oh, you know, journalism's under attack, journalism's mm. dying. Journalism's not going anywhere. No. It's been fundamentally transformed. The business model that we knew that we understood that a lot of my own research was based on. Mm. You know, the, oh, yeah. the voice of the big media, yeah. <clears throat> the big journalist, um, is still enormously important, but it's in a mix that is so diverse and so, you use the word, fractured,
1: mm.
0: it takes an incredibly savvy media organisation to stay on top of that. Mm. One of the things that was talked about interesting was local journalism. Mm. So you know local journalism has, has probably taken some of the biggest hits of all. Uh, we talk about news deserts where 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 particular towns are without a newspaper. What's happening there? Where are they getting their news from? Mm. At the same time, we've got a global digital, you know, news environment. As you say, we've got platforms that are really now media organisations. The ACCC's just looked into that. Um, What are their responsibilities? You know, journalism came with a set of responsibilities, or journalism as we knew it, I think I should say, came with a set of responsibilities to inform the world about what was happening. And so this changing media environment has just impacted on that enormously.
1: Yeah. Um, and I don't think we know all the answers yet. Um, Do you think th- there'll be a return to those that commitment to those values of, you know, fairness and impartiality? Or are we, have, have we moved so far oh. to a point where, to stay alive, we have to maybe move away from some of those bedrock values in order to survive?
0: I think the values have to remain. I think the technologies, the institutions have changed so much that they have to that, that lots of other people have to understand yeah. and engage with those values. I think the big organisations have to have to engage with those
1: values. Yeah, well, that that well, it's, it's a fascinating discussion, isn't it? And, and it's a live discussion globally about the role of your Facebooks and your Googles and these, yeah. um, you know, Amazon, um, Apple. Uh, that, you know, disinformation that, you know, is that, another oh. is another
0: huge topic. Yeah. So I also went to a conference where we just couldn't stop talking yeah. about how to manage mm. how 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 you know politics has just changed fundamentally.
1: And it's it but the role of the regulators in all of this is is fascinating, isn't it? You it's, know, and it's it's yeah. it's how do you because. We have never seen companies as big and as influential and as commercially rapacious as someone like a Facebook who, you know, how can it be controlled? You know, it's 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 fascinating. Like, and this is a live discussion today, you know, in London, in Brussels, and you know, obviously the Absolutely. Europeans, you know, the yep. GDPR yep. Act, um, you know, United States, they don't really don't know where, where to go with it <laughs> at the moment. You yeah, know, there's... Yeah. Uh, and how to resolve it. But I was listening to some uh, podcasts over the weekend about, uh, you know, what is going to happen, because people yeah. just don't know you have people like Craig Newmark from Craigslist, who's investing a huge amounts of money in community journalism, as you were yep. speaking before is how yep. do they real rebuild that. Uh, uh, you know, the commitment here in Australia from Nielsen. I can't remember what her first name is. Judith. But or, Judith yeah, Nielsen, absolutely. who's now I think yeah. $100 million in how, you know, trying to restore yeah. because, you know, journalism seen as the way that, you know, you know, power is held to account in in communities, and I there think are that's
0: right investigative know. journalism. Yeah, uh, I think, and that's what I mean about the journalism as we know it. It's just not people you know on the news on in a big newsroom anymore. It's a whole lot of people, and it may not be those traditional companies that that fund investigative journalism, but it still has to go on. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we'll never get to the point where you know where there will be challenges. Uh, we need we need that sort of that we need the people who can step back and take a look and really challenge and hold power to account.
1: So when you went to to Oxford, did you did you leave thinking, oh, <laughs> 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 or <No. laughs> or did you leave thinking we've sort of got a half an idea about what we're doing? Yeah, okay, it's lining up. I can see the the discussions. There's an you know, there's a. Um, you know, an alignment perhaps around some of the thinking about some of the solutions around this stuff, or is it, or, or are we still in the tumble dryer <laughs> trying to work our way clear? I think
0: institutions like the the Reuters Institute are helping us to, and and, and my own research in, uh, centre, I hope, are helping us to to pull apart the different. Um changes that we have to look at, so no, I did feel like I, did, I, I felt like, yes, you you, you you said something before about different regulatory environments yes, yeah. that's the beauty of comparative study. Yeah. I think we just can't all be in our own countries obsessed about our own no. uh, our own situation. We have these, these changes are happening globally, and we need to to look at, okay, so in Denmark, a change is going to make a different impact than it is in India. Yeah. Or, you know, there's more and more Asian countries joining the, the digital news report now. Yeah. So this is truly global. No, I left excited. I left... I left thinking there's a lot to do. Yeah. Yes, I agree with you. We don't understand everything yet. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's yeah. That's sort of what we do is we 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 try and tease apart um, these different problems and and have a have a look. You know, um, news literacy really important. Yeah. For us,
1: Big. really. Yeah. The disinformation important. piece. Yeah. I think that's to me. Yeah. A, you know, yeah. that's a a huge part of of uh, the challenge to do, to democracy. Really. Yeah. You know, is it how how well organised and how committed are the big platforms who are so dominant to actually getting on top of it. You know, um, Zuckerberg was in Washington, I think, last week speaking, saying, oh, you know, we're, we're doing our best, we're investing all of this money, you know, you can't break us up because, you know, we're yeah. the ones. Uh, we need We need the money to be able to, you mm. know, do the fight. But, it's, again, I was listening to this podcast over the weekend with um, – it's a podcast called um, Pivot with Scott Galloway, uh, G- Galloway a um, – an academic from uh, New York University and Kara Swisher, a journalist. And anyway, that, you know, the, the point that they were raising was, you know, someone somewhere is going to have to do something soon. Uh, and, it's, and, and their point was that really it's, it's going to have to be, you know, turn off the tap, you know, the money, you know, some regulatory organisation in some country mm. with, a, with a, uh, an election coming up saying, sorry, we don't think that this is going to work for us. We don't trust that you've got this under control. We're going to turn you off. And as soon yeah. as – they'll solve the, the – the argument being they'll solve the problem as soon as they need to, and the best way to make those big companies act is to, you know, make it financial. Follow the money. Follow the money, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, that's a that's a conversation for another time. Yeah. But on that very positive note, and I'm very pleased um, that you were able to get to that, but we'll get you back. There's so much to talk about. And uh, I'll be really fascinated um, – as, as you go through some of your research. And there's so much we didn't get to in our half an hour, but um, fascinating conversation with uh, Kerry McCallum, who is the Director of the News and Media Research Centre at the University of Canberra. So, Kerry, thanks for coming in.
0: Thanks, Dave. It's been a pleasure. And as you say, there's so much to talk about.
1: Indeed, there is. Okay, and to you, the audience, thank you for, for tuning in once again. Um, Sincerely appreciate it. I really do. I love uh, the opportunity to to do this podcast and to speak to you wherever you are in the world interested in this issue of government communication because we are committed to improving the capability in government to communicate effectively because if we can do that, I think we're half a chance of making some inroads around those big issues of trust in democratically elected institutions. If we can tell better stories, if we're more effective at explaining what governments do, then hopefully the community can trust government more and we can move forward from there. Anyway, thank you so much for coming once again. I'll be back at the same time in two weeks' time, as I always am. But for the moment, it's bye for now.
0: You've been listening to the GovCom's podcast.